Hello? 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 Yes, this is MCO. Hello? This is MCO. Hello? Hello? This is another MCO and transmission. to our Sutra Study Sunday. Um, tonight, um, if it's your first time, my name is Michael. I'm here every Sunday night. Uh, We're just talking and discussing Buddhist sutras, Buddhist texts or uh, teachings or discourses of the Buddha. Tonight, we are. it's sort of a follow-up to last week. Not that you had to be here last week, but it's a follow-up to last week. Um, tonight, we are doing the Vajra Pranyaparamita Sutra, also known as the Vajra Chedika Pranyaparamita Sutra. Um, it is normally translated as the Diamond Sutra. And this was a precedent that was set in the 1800s, first uh, by a reverend named Samuel Beale, who was the first to translate this sutra and other Buddhist sutras, some of Buddhist sutras, into English. He didn't know what a Vajra was. But he knew it was really strong. He knew it was really hard. Sounds like a diamond. But nothing harder or stronger than a diamond, right? And so this precedent of calling a Vajra a diamond stuck. Because people didn't know what a Vajra was. Traditionally, a Vajra actually was a thunderbolt lightning weapon of Indra. Chakra Devanam Indra, the god of the vaulted ceiling who is equivalent to the Greeks Zeus, who has a thunderbolt weapon, who is equivalent to the Orisha Chango, who has a thunderbolt weapon, who is equivalent to the Norse god Thor, who has a thunderbolt weapon, right, his thunder hammer. That image of the thunderbolt weapon is the Vajra originally. And you would traditionally see this sort of as a spinning disc on the finger of a Hindu god or an Indian god. And Indra, in particular, would and smote enemies with his Vajra. I brought in a Vajra so that you would know. This is not a diamond. This is a Vajra. This is not a diamond at all, at all, at all. This is a representation of that Vajra weapon. This is that. Now, this concept of a lightning bolt thunder weapon has a lot of importance. All right, so I'm going to pass this around so everybody can be the Vajra holder. Get a feel for what that's like. And again, know that it's not a diamond. What that is, again, I don't want to kind of get too into that tonight. Why this is called the Vajra Sutra, and in particular the Vajra Cutter Sutra, Vajra Chedika. That's a Vajra Chedika, sometimes also called a Vajra Scepter, something like that. Um, the basic idea, again, without going too deep into this, is that Vajra, lightning, the power, the quickness, the light, the flash, all of that, those images are metaphors for enlightenment the speed of enlightenment, the, the quickness of it. And there's a whole discourse in Buddhism that Vajra is the very substance of enlightenment. Nay, the very substance of this reality underneath it in a way. That this is something closer to an electric reality 
meaning if and what I would like to plant just a little seed of vajraness in your mind is thinking about the way electricity uh, in like a circuit board or something, the way that electricity doesn't behave like normal physical thing like water where it needs to physically go from here to this end. There's some kind of instantaneous that as soon as you apply electrical uh, electrical circuit or, or think of a, a string of uh, Christmas lights. It's not that the first light goes on and then the second light goes on and then the third and kind of bing, 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 bing. They all go on at once. Electricity is simultaneous. When you hit enter on the keyboard and update your blog, the whole internet changes at once. It's not that my terminal changes and then my neighbor's changes and next week China's internet changes. Well, maybe China's (laughs) internet changes. But the idea is it's not that across the country the internet changes like a few days later. No, it all happens instantly. And that idea of instantaneous power, movement, fluidity, fluidity, all of that is wrapped up in this idea of Vajra. Okay, so that's the name of it. Don't call it diamond anymore. Think this powerful weapon or something like that. Um, This sutra, uh, the, the entire intro I gave you last week about the origins of the Pranyaparamita sutras, uh, Loka Kashema being the first uh, translation into Chinese and around 180 and all of that. All, everything I said last week applies to the sutra in terms of where it came from, where it might have come from. The version I'm going to be reading from tonight is the translation done by a guy named Kumar Jiva, same guy that did the original Heart Sutra. Kumar Jiva, who did this translation of the Vajrachedika Sutra into Chinese in 400, you can go back to Kumar Jiva's translation. And then what's interesting is that in a place called Dunhuang, which is in Central Asia, in this uh, desert oasis called Dunhuang, they discovered a version of the Vajra Sutra, Kumar Jiva's Chinese version, and it was dated. It actually had a date. This is actually from the, it's a long scroll that's in the British Museum. And this is a diagram. It's, Kind of this actually, but it's the in the frontispiece and then the scroll of the whole Vajra Sutra, and it has a date, and it's the it's dated to 868 AD, and it has the prestige of being the world's oldest printed book, the Vajra Sutra. They printed this in blocks, and those blocks that they were using, they had I think six or seven of these big blocks, and they would mass produce. Vajra Sutras, in the block, in the relief block, it had the date of when they made the block. And so it's considered the oldest known dated book. This one, the Vajra Sutra. Okay, that's that. Really quickly, what I'm going to try to do is walk you through some of the the basic ideas of this. And then I'm going to try to do a, a reading of it. All right, And that might take about a half hour. So consider it a meditation or what have you. Um, But in order to make the reading as enjoyable as possible, um, I want to just again go through a few of these ideas that are on the board that appear in here uh, so that the reading can be real fluid and again you'll get the most out of it. This 
So I'll start with this. It's a very simple dialogue between Subuti, a monk, a bhikkhu, named Subuti, an elder, a thera, and he's an arhat, and the Buddha. This sutra, like most sutras, does this thing where they also refer to the Tathagata. Yes, that's just another name for the Buddha, but it's not. This Tathagata has a much deeper philosophical import that I'm not going to go too into now, but I just want you to know that the Buddha is, is this historical figure, enlightened being, Siddhartha, Gotama, the Shakyamuni, all of that. But the idea of a Tathagata is sort of the idea of the presence of enlightenment. So not a necessarily a historical figure, but that very present enlightened being. Uh, the root of this word, the Tathata, is suchness, as it isness, not from the past, not into the future, but just as it is, present and all that. That's tathata. And then agata, agata is an interesting thing where it makes something come from that. So the one that comes out of tathata is the tatha agata. Agata is born out, not born. There's other ways of talking about being born out of something. But this idea of emerging, that's agata. So to emerge out of tathata is tathagata. Yes, it's the Buddha, but again, it has a lot of philosophical import in particular because the Buddha himself in the sutra will never say, the, I the Buddha. He refers to the tathagata in this kind of third person move. Maybe it's kind of like this egoless move, but it's a little more philosophical than that. And this sutra will explain it. So I don't need to go into further detail. But when we start, I want you to know that these two terms are sort of interchangeable in the beginning. Um, the hardest thing, the reason why this sutra is notoriously difficult to translate, um, and in many ways it's just notoriously difficult. It's notoriously um, hard to comprehend hard to conceive of, at times paradoxical and all of that. And yes, this is a profound sutra that's going to be pushing up against our dualistic thinking. And actually, if you follow along, will push you into a non-dualistic way of thinking. That's its sort of raison d'etre is to do that. But unfortunately, because of language, translation, limitations of, of our grammar and ideas, it's very hard to translate this. And I, I mean translate because this is actually a translation I, I did. This is my English translation. And I can tell you it's so hard. You can read it in Chinese or read it in Sanskrit and kind of grok it. But then to put it into English, you're faced with all these choices you have to make. Do I go this direction or do I go that direction? Well, if I go this direction, I lose all that meaning. Well, if I go this direction, I lose all that meaning. Luckily, in Chinese or Sanskrit, you can sometimes play off of all those meanings. But in English, we can't. And in particular, there is a refrain, a repeating line of this sutra, in which the Buddha says, if bodhisattvas, so this is all about the bodhisattva path, not the arhat path, but the bodhisattva path. And it's this idea that if bodhisattvas have or hold on to the appearance or conception of a self 
individual sentient being or lifespan, then they are not bodhisattvas. Oh, what? So this is the main thing I want to focus on to make this reading really clear. Because if you get this, the sutra is much clearer about what it's trying to say. Then you can get to the profound non-dualistic things. But if you can't even get past the grammar, we're never going to get to the non-dualistic part. So bear with me. This sutra, this discourse between Shibuti and the Buddha is all about two things. Lakshana, which we've been talking ad nauseum about the last many Sundays. And then this idea of dharma or dharmas, plural. Okay? Lakshana are these characteristics, qualities. Uh, This is sort of a new one. Appearance or appearances, signs, marks, or conceptions. If you weren't here last week or the last week or the last week or the last week, last week, I'm not going to do the full Lakshana talk right now. But the idea is this. This is for everybody who has been coming. If we understand these Lakshana of this world, right? Square, maroon, so the color, the shape, the size, the singularity of it. These are all qualities, characteristics, or uh, the appearance. It sure has the appearance of a pillow, doesn't it? <laughs> kind of? Right, yeah, right. But the idea is that, or, or the, the, what I, the other example I've used in the past is that if I ask someone, uh, Brendan, would you get me a chair? How does Brendan know what to get me? How would he know? Well, he would look for something that fulfilled the criteria of being a chair, right? That has the qualities for maybe a back or at least something to sit on, right? That's a quality. Or that it has the appearance of a chair, the marks or the signs of a chair, the characteristics, all of that, right? Those are lakshana. And lakshana are not just visual, of course, because sounds have lakshana. They can be loud. They can be soft. They can be sweet. They can be hard. You know, they can be cacophonous. There's all kinds of qualities to sound. There's qualities to texture, right? Smooth, fuzzy. These are all lakshana, right? Everything we've been doing in the past, the Shurangama Sutra and the Shunyata Sutra, all these sutras that deal with lakshana, up until tonight, we have been dealing with the phenomenal world. The stuff, the things, the pillows, the bowls, the tables, the chairs, that stuff. And we've been thinking about their lakshana, their qualities, right? This sutra is wild because it gets into the lakshana, the qualities or characteristics or the marks of... So, hey, that's a chair. It's got four four legs, something I could sit on on the back, and it's soft. Wow, that's a chair based on its appearance, based on its qualities, right? Also based on its lakshana, one lakshana in particular, which is that it's not moving. Therefore, it's inanimate. It's not alive. You're, no, one, no one's scratching his arm. That's a behavior, a characteristic, or the appearance or a quality of, an, of a living thing, of an animate, sentient being, Right? So this is getting into the qualities or the lakshana of selves. Oh, look, a self, a self, another self. 
individuality or individualism, not individualism, but the idea of being an individual, the idea of being a sentient being versus an insentient being or unsentient being, and then the idea of something that's having life at all, or because this is tricky about the word jiva and in particular the way Kumar Jiva translated it, which gives us insight into how the Buddhists were thinking about it, it could be life or lifespan. Meaning that like something is born, lives, and then dies, and so it had a life. So it's, a, it's the idea of being alive, but that's just, this is more about being alive. This is actually about having a lifespan. Do you understand this sort of slight difference between the? Now, here's where it gets tricky. In the sutra, the refrain, the line that gets repeated is that bodhisattvas don't have the appearance or conception, the lakshana, of self-individuality, sentient being, or lifespan. And here's where it gets into the nitty-gritty of philosophy. Again, I'm not going to go too deep into this, but it's this very subtle difference between to be or to have. And I don't know how many people, maybe you speak a romance language or speak like Spanish. And you know how in Spanish you don't say I am 45 years old. You say I have 45 years. Right? So it's an, inter- so the, it's an interesting shift between like I am 45 years old. Like I am that versus I have 45 years. It is gray versus it has the quality of gray. There's a very slight difference between possession of a quality and then essential quality. And this is happening in the difference between estar and ser as well in Spanish and Latin. It's happening in Chinese with yo and shi. Yo means to have this quality, and shi means to be that quality. So think about that subtle difference between I am 45 years old versus I have 45 years. That weird language problem of to be and to have is wrapped up in the sutra when the, when the Buddha says that bodhisattvas shouldn't have the appearance of a self-individual sentient being or lifespan. And what seems to be happening in the Sanskrit that Kumarajiva translated into Chinese and it's happening in the Chinese is it's this sort of twofold movement of a, the bodhisattva should not be conceived of as having the appearance of being a self-individual sentient being with a lifespan. Nor should the bodhisattva have the view of or the concept of selves, individuals, sentient beings with lifespans. Because they're lakshana, just like all the lakshana we've been talking about, that these qualities are all dependently originated and therefore not had by the objects. For example... I was saying in all my other past Dharma talks about this dependent origination of um, 
of knowing what, what one thing is. So for example, if I just said, what is that? You kind of might be a little puzzled, especially if you've never been here. It's like well, a little wooden... Uh, like, I honestly don't know what you would think that is, right? But if I do this, you're like, oh, I know what that is. I know what those qualities are now, right? Well, because you're bouncing off of this, right? Well, without going into too much detail... The idea is, is, well, how do I know that that's a sentient being? Oh, okay. So sentience, the idea of a sentient being is dependent upon the idea of non-sentient. They are riding up against each other. So the idea is that even the idea of a self with an in individuality, with sentience, and a lifespan our lakshana. This is the craziest thing you will ever hear. These ideas that to perceive something as being alive, individual, with a lifespan, is a lakshana being thrown on it like a color, shape, size, alive, all of that. That's what this is being suggested here. So then I can say that everything that is perceived is lakshana. Exactly. Exactly. So this sutra is not going to be talking about shape, color, size, lakshana. It's going to be talking about woshyank, atman, or a self, a pudgala, which is a fascinating idea, a sense of individuality, a renshyank, a zhongshengshyank, a sentient being, shyank, or lakshana, and then a jiva, or this uh, it's a lifespan. So it's going to just talk about those four, and it will also be referencing the 32 marks or signs or characteristics of the Superman or enlightened being. This is an old Indian idea, way before Buddhism, that a liberated or enlightened being can be recognized, discerned, based on 32 auspicious signs or marks, uh, an ushnisha, a protrudence of the skull, white tufted hair between the eyebrows, um, 40 teeth, straight, uh, arms that are long that go past the knees when standing up straight, all these 32 things. And when you first read them, you think, oh, that would be a weird looking dude. <laughs> Until you understand that when it says that he, one of the 32 marks is a chest like a lion, it means a chest like a lion. Proud. When it says he has feet like a deer, it means he's light on his feet. So it's all poetics for these marks of how can you tell an enlightened person? Oh, you'll know them when they see them. Light on their feet, swift as a gazelle, yada, yada, yada. That's the 32 marks traditionally. The Buddha is said to have the 32 marks. Look, I drew his little Ushnisha, right? This sutra is going to talk about those lakshana in a whole new interesting way. So now you know. When he mentioned, and these will also be referred to as the perfect characteristics. They're considered perfect or signs of perfection. This sutra is going to critique that. 
Also on this, I want you to know, underneath this is a very serious message about discrimination. And I mean that in all of its broad spectrum of meaning. I mean everything from very subtle discrimination of how do you discriminate the bowl from the table, from the pillow, from the clock, from the microphone. That's discrimination. Separating these things out and saying you're that, you're that, based on your lakshana, based on your lakshana, based on your lakshana. That's discrimination. But from a Buddhist point of view, that spectrum goes all the way to gross social injustice discrimination based on people's lakshana. That's, this is talking about how stupid and ridiculous it is to judge people based on their lakshana. That's what's being discussed here in a very serious way that the liberated bodhisattva is not doing that, is not saying, oh, look at you with that skin color, that hair color, that, that. You're that person in that box, in that category, all figured out already. This is saying only a fool does that. Says, oh, I've seen one of you before. You've never seen one of me before, right? Okay, so that's all happening in this. Um, This is about the Bodhisattva path, of course, focusing on these paramitas, six of them, giving, which is going to be discussed. By the way, Shubhuti was considered among the Theravadins as the foremost in giving. The foremost in giving of gifts So this is why this sutra is given to him. Uh, Discipline is moral discipline based on rules type of thing. This sutra is going to be talking about patient endurance. In particular, this is the patient endurance of assault by others, of like putting up with other people's nonsense, that type of (laughs) patience, virya or determination, and then our good old dhyana meditation, and then finally, pranya or wisdom. Okay, so this is a sutra for the Bodhisattva path, focusing on these paramitas. This is the stuff that's being talked about. And there's also a discourse going on about dharmas or dharma. Dharma, of course, means truth, the truth. But it can also mean truths, plural, or teachings. And this is where the, the translation that I did here Rather than attempting to translate the word dharma, it's best to keep it just as dharma because it has so many meanings. But know that in here, there's going to be a couple being played with. One will be dharma as truth, and therefore what is not true. Dharma is what is true. A-dharma, or what is not the dharma, that's falsehood. This is going to be actually playing with that idea of what's true and what's not true, It will also be referring to dharma or dharmas as teachings, as in the dharma, the, uh, you know, the dharva of of Mahavira, the founder of the the Jain tradition, right? Mahavira had his dharma. He had his truth, his teachings, his way. The Buddha has his truth, his way. And Buddhism's great because they're like, yeah, that's his dharma. That's his truth. This is the Buddha dharma. This is my truth. And he's got his truth. And there's a way in which Buddhism says it's okay that people can have multiple truths in that way. This is going to be discoursing about those types of dharmas, and it's also going to be talking about dharmas as principles or laws, like fundamental laws, like the law of gravity, that type of law or principle. Dharmas are also that, truths about this world. 
Okay. Everybody good so far? One? Yeah. Question. Yo. Um, you had talked about the, the, the different um, languages and to be versus to have. And at that point, I started to wonder if when we look at self-individuality, sentient being, lifespan, is it is, is the issue here how we perceive someone and we perceive them in those ways, therefore they're not a bodhisattva, or is it within the mind of the person or the, the creature or whatever who is possibly the bodhisattva? I'm just wondering, like, I'm not even sure if it matters which is mm -hmm. which, but um, I'm trying to figure out uh, is it is it the person that the bodhisattva's perception of themselves as a self, or is it an outsider's perception of them that matters? Both. Both. It's okay. about. Let's say I'm on the bodhisattva path. It's about how I view out here, but also how I think about myself. So it's both in, in that regard. Thank you. Yep. Okay. One, uh, two more, two more ideas. It's very fun and helpful to know that the Buddha and Shibuti here, the worldview at the time, the Buddhist worldview at the time. So these guys at the time understood themselves to be living on the southern continent of four continents that are around this giant mountain that's at the center of our world, basically at the North Pole, rising upwards. I drew here, this is Mount Everest, what we know of as the highest mountain in the world. Mount Maru far exceeds that. This is what's called a Lokadatu, a world system that includes a Mount Maru, these continents, uh, a ring of iron that holds in the world's waters, uh, sun, a moon, stars, uh, and also all possible rebirths, human, ghost, hell dweller, asura, deva, all of that is happening in a world system. Within Buddhism, there is the idea that you could have a thousand world systems, a thousand lokadatus. So this is a Mount Maru with four continents and all that. That's a Mount Maru with four continents, each of these. And this represents a thousand of them. That's a small lokadatu. Uh, and then you have a thousand of those collections of a thousand. That's a medium-sized lokadatu. And then if you have a thousand collections of a thousand collections of a thousand worlds... That's called in English a trichiliocosm. That is a neologism, a new word made up to capture tri-sahasra, maha-sahasra, lokadatu. Three thousand world systems. This is sometimes mistranslated as just three thousand world systems. No, it's a billion. Okay, so they're going to be referring to this wild worldview of parallel dimensions, infinite worlds within worlds. And by the way, each of these eventually will have a Buddha. This sutra is going to be talking about past life Buddhas. The Buddha is going to be talking about when I was in a past life with a different Buddha. 
So know that it's in this kind of wild cosmology. The sutra is going to talk about the seven treasures. I put them up here so that you will know what they're referring to. These are traditionally spoken about in Buddhism. Maybe they refer to the chakras or something. Not quite sure. And finally, it's going to be talking about these five eyes. And in a way, this is about Shibuti, who already has the wisdom eye. He also is known as one of the foremost arhats trained in emptiness. It's going to be about him developing these other eyes. So there's this physical eye, the actual one that deduces form. There's a divine eye that can see the other dimensions, spirits, see much further than the, this physical eye and all of that. The wisdom eye in Buddhism is what understands or sees emptiness. The Dharma eye is what sees or understands dependent origination. And then finally, the Buddha eye is all four of those and more. It is sarvanyana, all knowledge. And this is going to be it also, in a way, critiquing this, because what I want you to know is that this whole sutra is a wild critique of not only Theravada old school Buddhism that so very, got very hierarchical with this idea of like entering the stream, I'm a stream enterer, I'm a once returner, I'm a non-returner. Oh, you made it to Arhat level. Buddhism, the old school Buddhism, seems to have gotten very institutionalized with all of these kind of like... Um, kind of payola schemes that you could kind of pay your way to the top. And that's because this sutra is also discoursing about rewards or merit. What's known as punya. Basically, the idea was is that giving, the act of giving, was like, ooh, now I get my punya. Now I get my rewards. And those rewards might be, ooh, I'm a once-returner. Or the rewards might be Whatever, but the idea was that there was this kind of karmic reciprocity going on, and that seems to have started to become a problem where people were doing things for the merit. So, this is going to be talking about what merit or rewards, so these two words will appear, what that really is. It's going to be talking about what these eyes really are, it's going to be talking about what the 32 marks really are. And all of that. Okay. Any questions before I do it to it? Okay. I have never done this. I've never done the Diamond Sutra in one shot. I've read it numerous. I've read it five times today. But I've never read it aloud in one shot. But it's supposed to be the way you do it. Like, it's one of those sutras where they say, if you do the whole thing, that's it. So, buckle up. Um... Oh, no, I'm good. Thank you, though. Um, depending on how things go, if I get to halfway, if I get to chapter 16 and we're looking fatigued, or I might stop halfway and then do the second half next week, but I have high hopes that we'll do it all. Okay. Because, I, again, I don't want to stop. I don't want to please no questions while I'm reading. Um, and please refer to the board. Um, Vajra Pranyaparamita Sutra. Thus have I heard. Once the Buddha was in the kingdom of Shavasti in Jetavana, Anatha Pandika's park, with a great assembly of bhikkhus, 1,250 in all. Then, during mealtime, the world on one put on his robe, took up his bowl, 
entered the great city of Shravasti to beg for food. After begging from house to house inside the city, he returned to where he was staying. When he finished eating his meal, he put away his robe and bowl, washed his feet, arranged his seat, and then sat. Chapter 2. At that time, the elder Shibuti was among the great assembly, and he then rose from his seat. He bared his right shoulder, placed his right knee on the ground, joined his palms together, and reverentially addressed the Buddha, saying, Rare world-honored one, the Tathagata is ever protecting and mindful of all bodhisattvas, skillfully entrusting and encouraging them all. World-honored one, if virtuous men and women wish to develop the mind of supreme, unsurpassable enlightenment, on what would you say they should rely? How would you say they master their minds? The Buddha replied, Excellent, excellent, Shibuti. It is just as you have said. The Tathagata is ever protecting and mindful of all bodhisattvas, skillfully entrusting and encouraging them all. Now listen attentively, and I will explain for you. If virtuous men and women wish to develop the mind of supreme, unsurpassable enlightenment, they should rely like this. They should master their minds like this. Please continue, world-honored one. We joyfully wish to hear. Chapter 3. The Buddha told Shibuti, All bodhisattva mahasattvas should master their minds like this, thinking, of all kinds of sentient beings, whether born from an egg, from a womb, out of moisture, or from metamorphosis, whether they are with form, without form, or whether neither with perception nor without perception. Imagine I cause them all to enter the final nirvana without remainder, thus liberating them. By liberating immeasurable, incalculable, illimitable sentient beings, in reality, there is no sentient being who has attained liberation. And why is this Shibuti? Because if bodhisattvas hold to the conception of a self, an individual, sentient being with a lifespan, then they are not bodhisattvas. Chapter 4. Furthermore, Shibuti, regarding dharmas, bodhisattvas should not rely on anything while practicing giving. This is what is called giving without relying on sight, giving without relying on sound, scent, taste, touch, or thought. Shibuti, bodhisattvas should give like this and not rely on appearances. Why is this? If bodhisattvas give without relying on appearances, their rewards are inconceivable. Shibuti, what do you think? The space in the eastern direction can be conceived of. Can it not? It cannot, world honor one. Shibuti, the space in the northern direction, the western, the southern, the four ordinal directions, as well as above and below, can that space be conceived of or not? It cannot, world honor one. 
Shibuti. When a bodhisattva gives without relying on appearances, the rewards are also like this, inconceivable. Shibuti. Bodhisattvas should rely only as has been taught. Shibuti. What do you think? The Tathagata can be seen by bodily appearances. Can he not? No, world-honored one. The Tathagata cannot be seen by bodily appearances. Why is this? The Tathagata has said that bodily appearances are not bodily appearances. The Buddha told Shibuti, every appearance whatsoever is a deception. If you can see all appearances not as appearances, then you will see the Tathagata. Chapter 6. Shibuti addressed the Buddha saying, World Honor One, there are many sentient beings who upon hearing sayings and statements such as these who will generate sincere faith. Are there not? The Buddha told Shibuti, do not make such statements. 500 years after the passing of the Tathagata, there will be those who uphold the precepts and cultivate rewards. From these statements, they will be able to generate faith in mind, considering them to be true. Yet you should know these people have not merely planted wholesome roots under one Buddha, two Buddhas, three, four, or five Buddhas, but they have already planted all wholesome roots under immeasurable thousands of tens of thousands of Buddhas. And hearing these statements, even for an instant, these people will generate pure faith. Shibuti, the Tathagata fully knows and fully sees all these sentient beings obtaining immeasurable rewards like this. Why is this? Because all these sentient beings are also without the conception of a self, individuality, sentient being, or lifespan. They are without a conception of dharmas, and they are also without the conception of non-dharma. And why is this? Because if the minds of all these sentient beings took hold of conceptions, then they would become attached to a self, an individual, sentient being with a lifespan. And if they took hold of the conception of dharmas, then they would also be attached to a self, an individual sentient being with a lifespan. And why is this? Because if they took hold of a conception of what is not the Dharma, then they would also still be attached to a self, an individual sentient being with a lifespan. For this reason, they should not take hold of Dharmas, nor should they take hold of what is not the Dharma. Due to this reason, the Tathagata has always said, all you bhikkhus know that the Dharma I teach is like in the parable of the raft. The Dharma should nevertheless be abandoned. How much more so what is not the Dharma? Chapter 7. Shibuti, what do you think? Has the Tathagata attained supreme, unsurpassable enlightenment? Has the Tathagata spoken any dharma? Shibuti replied, As I understand the meaning of what the Buddha has said, there is no definite dharma called supreme unsurpassable enlightenment. 
and there is no definite Dharma that the Tathagata can speak of. Why is this? Because the Tathagata says that all Dharmas cannot be held, cannot be spoken of, are neither the Dharma nor not the Dharma. How is this? All saints and sages are distinguished by an unconditioned Dharma. Chapter 8. Shibuti, what do you think? If someone filled a great trichiliocosm with the seven treasures and used them all to practice giving, the rewards this person obtained would be many, would they not? Shibuti replied, extremely many, world honored one. Why is this? Because these rewards are not rewards by their nature. And for this reason, the Tathagata has said the rewards would be many. If, however, there was someone who received and retained even just four lines of verse from this sutra and explained them to others, the rewards would surpass those. And why is this Shibuti? Because each and every Buddha and all of their supreme, unsurpassable enlightenment come from this sutra. Shibuti, what is called Buddha Dharma, is not the Buddha's Dharma. Chapter 9. Shibuti, what do you think? Is a Shrotopana able to have this thought? I've obtained the fruit of a Shrotopana! Or not? Shibuti replied, No, world honored one. Why is this? Shrotopanas are named so for entering the stream, yet there is no place to enter. Nor is there entering into sight, sound, scent, taste, touch, or thought. That is why they are called Shrotopanas. Shibuti, what do you think? Is a Chakradagaman able to have this thought? I have attained the fruit of a Chakradagaman. Or not? Shibuti replied, No, world honored one. Why is this? Chakradagamans are named for returning once more. Yet in reality, there is no returning once more. That is why they are called Chakradagamans. Shibuti, what do you think? Is the Anagaman able to have this thought? I have attained the fruit of an Anagaman. Or not? Shibuti replied, No, world honored one. Why is this? Because Anagamans are named for not returning. Yet in reality, there is no not returning. That is why they are called Anagamans. Shibuti, what does your mind say? Is an Arhat able to have this thought? I have obtained the way of an arhat, or not? Shibuti replied, no, world honored one. And why is this? In reality, there is no dharma called an arhat. World honored one, if arhats had this thought, I have obtained the way of an arhat, then they would become attached to a self, an individual, a sentient being with a lifespan. World honored one, the Buddha says that I, Shibuti, have obtained the non-confronting samadhi, that I am first and foremost among men, the foremost arhat freed from all desire. Yet I do not have this thought. I am an arhat freed from desire. World honored one, if I had this thought, 
I have obtained the way of an arhat. Then the world-honored one would not have said, Shibuti is the one who enjoys forest practice. Since in reality, Shibuti has nothing to practice, therefore he is called Shibuti, the one who enjoys the forest practice. Chapter 10. The Buddha told Shibuti, What do you think? In the past, when the Tathagata was with Dipankara Buddha, there was some obtainment of the Dharma, was there not? World Honor One. In the past, when the Tathagata was with Dipankara Buddha, in reality, there was no obtainment of any Dharma. Shibuti, what do you think? Bodhisattvas adorn these Buddha lands, do they not? No, World Honored One. Why is this? Because the adornment of Buddha lands is not adorning. So it is called the adornment of Buddha lands. For this reason, Shibuti, all Bodhisattva Mahasattva should generate a pure, clean mind like this. They should not rely on sight to generate this mind. They should not rely on sounds to generate this mind, sense, tastes, touch, or thoughts to generate this mind. They should generate this mind by not relying on anything. Shibuti, suppose someone had a body like the majestic Mount Maru. What do you think? This body is great, is it not? Shibuti replied, extremely great, world honored one. And why is this? Because the Buddha has said that what is not a body is called a great body. Chapter 11, Shibuti. If there were as many Ganges rivers as there are grains of sand in the Ganges River, what do you think? All the grains of sand in all those Ganges rivers would be many, would they not? Shibuti replied, extremely many, world honor one. Just the Ganges River alone would nevertheless be an incalculable many. How much more so the sand of so many Ganges rivers? Shibuti, I will now truthfully tell you, if there are virtuous men and women who fill as many great trichiliocosms as there are grains of sand in all those Ganges rivers, and they filled them all with the seven treasures, and used all of that to practice giving, they would obtain many rewards, would they not? Shibuti replied, extremely many, world honored one. The Buddha told Shibuti, if virtuous men and women just receive and retain four lines of verse from this sutra and explain it to others, then those rewards will surpass the aforementioned rewards. Chapter 12. Furthermore, Shibuti, Following an explanation of this sutra, even just four lines of it, you should know that at this place, every deva, human, and asura of all worldly realms will make offerings as if it were a Buddha pagoda. How much more so if there is someone able to receive, retain, read, and recite it completely? Shibuti, you should know this person achieves the supreme, foremost, rare dharma. Wherever this scripture is located, there will be a Buddha 
and an honorable disciple. Chapter 13. At that time, Shibuti addressed the Buddha saying, World honored one, what should this sutra be named? How should we respectfully uphold it? The Buddha told Shibuti, This sutra is named the Vajra Pranyaparamita Sutra, and by this name you should respectfully uphold it. How is this? Shibuti. The Buddha says, Pranyaparamita is not Pranyaparamita. Shibuti, what do you think? The Tathagata just spoke the Dharma, did he not? Shibuti addressed the Buddha saying, World Honored One, the Tathagata has not said anything at all. Shibuti, what do you think? All the minute particles in a great trichiliocosm are many, are they not? Shibuti replied, extremely many, world honored one. Shibuti, all minute particles, the Tathagata says, are not minute particles. That is why they are called minute particles. The Tathagata says a world is not a world. That's why it's called a world. Shibuti, what do you think? You can see the Tathagata by the 32 characteristics, can you not? No, world on one. You cannot see the Tathagata by the 32 characteristics. Why is this? The Tathagata says the 32 characteristics are not characteristics. That is why they are called the 32 characteristics. Shibuti, if there are virtuous men and women who practice giving as many lives as there are grains of sand in the Ganges River, and if, however, there are people who just receive and retain four lines of verse from this sutra and explain them to others, their rewards will be many, many more. Chapter 14. When Shibuti heard this sutra spoken, he deeply understood its meaning. And weeping tears of lament addressed the Buddha, saying, Rare world-honored one, the Buddha has spoken such an extremely profound sutra. Ever since I obtained the wisdom eye, not once have I heard such a sutra. World-honored one, if there are also people able to hear this sutra, their faithful mind will be clear and pure, and there will arise within them the appearance of reality. You should know that these people achieve the foremost, rarest form of merit. World Honor One, this appearance of reality is not an appearance. And for this reason, the Tathagata has said it is called the appearance of reality. World Honor One, now that I'm able to hear a scripture such as this, I believe and understand, receive and retain it without much difficulty. If in times to come, after 500 years, there are sentient beings who are able to hear this sutra, believe, understand, receive, and retain it, then these people are the foremost rare. Why is this? Because these people are without the conception of a self, individuality, sentient beingness, or lifespan. And how is this? The conception of a self is not a conception. The conception's individuality, sentient being, and lifespan are not conceptions. Why is this, Shibuti? Those who are free from all conceptions are all called Buddhas.
The Buddha told Shibuti, so it is, so it is. If also there is someone able to hear this sutra who is not alarmed, not afraid, not awed, you should know that that person is extremely rare. And why is this Shibuti? Because the Tathagata says the foremost paramita is not the foremost paramita. That is why it is called the foremost paramita. Shibuti, the paramita of patience, the Tathagata says, is not the paramita of, of patience. Why is this? It's like in the distant past, when my body was being mutilated by the King Kali. At that time, I was without the conception of a self, an individual, sentient being, or lifespan. Why is this? Because then, while I was being dismembered joint by joint by joint, if I had the conception of a self, an individual, sentient being, or lifespan, I would have given rise to anger and hatred. Shibuti, I also recall going through 500 lifetimes as an ascetic, practicing patience. During those lifetimes, I was without the conception of a self, an individual, sentient being, or lifespan. For this reason, Shibuti, bodhisattvas should be free from all conceptions and develop the mind of supreme, unsurpassable enlightenment. They should not rely on sight to generate this mind. They should not rely on sounds, sense, tastes, tactility, or thoughts to generate this mind. They should generate a mind that does not rely on anything. If the mind is reliant like this, then it will be non-reliant. For this reason, the Buddha says the minds of bodhisattvas should not rely on sight when practicing giving. Shibuti, bodhisattvas benefit all sentient beings and should practice giving like this. The Tathagata says all conceptions are not conceptions, and also that all sentient beings are not sentient beings. Shibuti, the Tathagata is a speaker of what is true, what is real, what is so, what is not deceptive, and what is not altered. Shibuti, this dharma that the Tathagata has attained is neither real nor irreal. Shibuti, if the minds of bodhisattvas rely on dharmas while practicing giving, it is like someone entering the dark without anything to see. But if the minds of bodhisattvas do not rely on dharmas while practicing giving, it is like someone with bright, illuminating sunshine eyes, able to see many kinds of wonders. Shibuti, in ages to come, if there are virtuous men and women able to receive, retain, read, and recite this sutra, then, by means of the wisdom of the Buddha, the Tathagata fully knows and fully sees these people all achieving immeasurable, illimitable merit. Shibuti, if there are virtuous men and women who, in the beginning part of the day, practice giving as many lives as there are grains of sand in the Ganges River, and who, in the afternoon, practice giving as many lives as there are grains of sand in the Ganges River, and who, in the evening, practice giving as many lives as there are grains of sand in the Ganges River, 
And like this, they practice giving lives for immeasurable hundreds of thousands of tens of thousands of millions of eons. And if, however, there are people who hear this scripture with faith in mind, not disputing it, their rewards will surpass those. How much more so for recording, writing, receiving, retaining, reading, and reciting it, and explaining it to others. Shibuti, essentially speaking, this sutra has inconceivable, immeasurable, illimitable merit. The Tathagata has spoken it for those who have embarked on the great vehicle, for those who have embarked on the supreme vehicle. If there are people able to receive, retain, read and recite it and explain it widely to others, the Tathagata fully knows and fully sees all these people achieving immeasurable, indescribable, illimitable, inconceivable merit. People like this will then bear the supreme, unsurpassable enlightenment of a Tathagata. Why is this Shibuti? If there are those who enjoy the lesser dharmas and are attached to the view of a self, an individual, sentient beings with lifespans, then they will be unable to listen to, receive, read, and recite this sutra or explain it to others. Shibuti, wherever there is this sutra, devas, humans, and asuras of all worldly realms will make offerings. And you should know that this place will then become a stupa, and they will all reverentially make obeisance, circumambulating it, spreading all kinds of flowers and incense over this place. Furthermore, Shibuti, virtuous men and women who who receive, retain, read, and recite this sutra, and who are then disdained by others, you should know that they should have fallen into evil paths from karmic offenses in their former lives. Yet, Due to this disdain by others in the present life, the karmic offenses of their former lives will then be eradicated and they will attain supreme, unsurpassable enlightenment. Shibuti, I recall in the past immeasurable Asamkya eons before Dipankara Buddha, I was able to meet 84,000 million Nayutas of Buddhas, making offerings to each of them and attending to them without neglect or fault. If, however, there are people in the latter times of decline able to receive, retain, read, and recite this sutra, the merit I obtain for making offerings to all of those Buddhas will pale in comparison to the merit that is obtained by those people. Shibuti, if virtuous men and women in the latter times of decline receive, retain, read, and recite this sutra, and I fully explained the merit that they attained from that, the minds of some people who hear it would be confounded, suspicious, and untrusting. Shibuti, you should know that the meaning of this sutra is inconceivable, and its fruition is also inconceivable. Okay, I'm going to stop there. That's chapter 16. I can't do it all, so might as well stop. That's the first half. A lot going on. In a way, not actually, in the sense that everything, you know, it's only talking about these ideas in that sense. 
and it just keeps talking about them, right? Filling trichiliocosms with seven treasures, accumulating rewards or merit. We didn't even get to the eyes, so that doesn't even matter. Right? So it's very simple in the sense of like the limited amount of topics that are being discussed. It's just that what it's talking about is, is, is very heavy duty, right? Um, <clears throat> no, I mean, the last few have been Ananda, or, you know, and he's kind of a knucklehead, so it's sort of like, you know, how do you explain it to somebody who just can't get it? Yep. Right? Where Shibuti's... Shibuti's... So I'm trying to understand, like, why is it that it's Shibuti, and he sort of, like, has all the right answers. Yep. I'm just wondering, well, how does that, how is that working? Um, so I mentioned how Shibuti was in the Theravada tradition known as the foremost in giving of gifts. But the idea is, is that he was good at giving stuff. He was good at, at the actual giving. And this is sort of saying, if you give... So let me talk about that. Giving based on appearances. And this says bodhisattvas should not give, not practice dana, dana, charity based on appearances. What that might mean is, and I know this is going to be a little while, but I just want you to hear it. What it might mean is, is you're walking down the street and you're like, well, that guy has all the marks of a homeless person. And that guy has all the marks of a wealthy person. So I'm going to give to this person. Right? This is saying, no, you should give and give and give and give and give and give indiscriminately, not based on characteristics. So this is saying, no, bodhisattvas should not rely on lakshana in the practice of giving. They give indiscriminately. In particular, the discourse on this sutra and the whole discourse on the bodhisattva path eventually says that the bodhisattva gives without distinguishing gift, giver, and recipient. That all of that is a a big discriminatory problem. And if you're down with, with Nietzsche, Nietzsche, right, who has this whole critique of pity, this is the same idea, which is that if I give you this, it's like, oh, I did the good thing and I helped the poor gnome because he didn't have a bull. So you see, like gift, so I'm going to discriminate the gift, the valuable, and then I'm going to discriminate the person that gives it and I'm going to discriminate the giver. The bodhisattva should do that indiscriminately, not distinguishing gift giver from recipient, who's giving what to whom, right? That's, that's part of this idea of not giving based on appearances, right? So that's one reason why Shibuti is being spoken to. He already is good at giving, but the Buddha is saying you could go further with your practice of giving. He is also the foremost with the wisdom eye. He understands emptiness. He's been to the Shunyata Vihara a lot. And the Buddha is now saying there's further places to go. In fact, what I failed to mention in the beginning is, is that this whole sutra is, is um, prompted when Shibuti says, right, he has his question and he says, uh, world honor one, right? If virtuous men and women, by the way, this is also what makes this a Mahayana text, and, and then in my opinion, much greater than Theravada, because the Theravada would never, ever say women. Women are sort of a second thought in the Theravada, where it's like, what's good for the men is good for the women too. 
talking to the guys here. This is, hey, everybody. Virtu- and so Shibuti says, if virtuous men and women want to develop anuttara samyak samboti, supreme unsurpassable enlightenment, how would you say they master their minds? On what would you say they rely? That's his question. So first of all, he's, it's kind of funny, right? Because he's kind of doing this like, uh, uh, hey, Buddha, like, a, a friend of mine wants to get us on the What do you think he should do? Right? He's, it's honestly kind of funny where he's like, he wants to know for him, in, sort of, but he's kind of being like, so say virtuous men and women want to achieve Anuttara Samyak somebody. So the one thing is kind of funny. But the second part, which is, he's saying, it's great that I'm an Arhat. I'm freed from desire. I'm liberated. This is great. But what if I wanted to be a Buddha? What if I didn't want to just be a voice hearer, a Shravaka, a, a Arhat? But what if I wanted to be a Buddha? That's what he's saying. When he says, if virtuous men and women want to develop Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi, supreme unsurpassable enlightenment, what do they do? Shibuti's asking, it's, it's great that I've re- achieved this level, but what if I want to be a Buddha? And that's when the Buddha says, oh, well, if you want to know, this is how it goes. Even if I were to liberate every being in the entire universe, no sentient being would ever be liberated. Because actually, the idea of a self with an individual sentient beingness and lifespan that can be liberated from all of that are all lakshanic projections. That's really, Shibuti, what's going on. <laughs> FYI. <laughs> That's how this sutra's functioning. And so it's kind of, you, you see it, Shibuti's like, whoa, he's like, that's crazy. No sen- but this whole time we've been vowing to save all sentient beings. <laughs> this is... <laughs> This is the ultimate reality, ultimate reality, emptiness. And then if you're coming back, you're having to live in the relative world. And in order to live in the relative world, we do call things things, and it's a convenience, and it's something that we do. And to be able to hold those two things at once, is that, is that kind of what, what is getting... Yes. The most important part of this is that if you understand a sattva... If you understand sattva, the sentient being, right? Bodhisattvas and Buddhas are in the business of saving sentient beings, having great compassion for all sentient beings, right? But the wisdom has told me sentient being, this is a lakshanic projection. And so there would be one totally deluded route, which would be like, oh, you don't exist, That's not right. That, right. that is not right, though. But that could happen, right? Because if, if, if there's no such thing as a sentient being, who cares? But, but it's not that. It's not that there's no sentient beings. There's all these sentient beings we all need saving from the delusion of cells, individuals with sentience and lifespans. We all need to be saved from that. It's a total paradox. Yes, Bodhisattvas, bodhisattvas are bodhisattvas because they know there's no such thing as sentient beings. That's why they vow to save all sentient beings. 
Yes, it's a paradox. And dharmas are infinite. And bodhisattvas vow to learn them all. Right? The rules are infinite. Bodhisattvas vow to follow them all. And sentient beings are infinite. And bodhisattvas vow to save them all. It's a totally wild idea. And I... Okay, so on the, on the, uh, this, not, so I started this by saying that this could be thought of as a deep lesson in the problems of discrimination. Buddhists are so beyond discriminating people based on their gender, skin color, age, and all of that, because these people are talking about trying not to discriminate sentient beings from non-sentient beings. Do you see what I'm saying? They're at that level. And so the behavior of discriminating people based on the lakshana of skin color is like the most childish, ridiculous behavior from a bodhisattva's point of view because they're wrestling with trying not to distinguish sentient from insentient. They're wrestling at that level. Do you see what I'm saying? They've almost, it would really be like if these people showed up today, it would be like, oh my God, these people have a lot of work to do. They're, in, they're at this level, right? So there's that practical aspect of this sutra that it's really talking about not judging books by their cover at all, at all, at all, at all, at all, at all, right? But I also want to plant this little seed of what else could be happening here. And I talk, I, I've used this example in the past, and I want to say this totally metaphorically. Please don't mistake me as some new age freak, Right? I'm just going to kind of play with an example, all right? But what if we are, or whatever, star children? Total little enlightened star children. Beings of pure light. And because I don't know that, or I'm ignorant to that, I project onto star child of light, sentient human being, going to die... What a disservice to Star Child to project such finitude, such finite death sentence of mortality to a Star Child. And we're doing it to ourselves. We are Star Children, and we look in the mirror and we think, oh no, oh no, oh no. We project onto ourselves that we are a self with an individuality, sentient being with a lifespan. Totally ruling out star childhood due to this discrimination. So think about that. Like, um, you know, what anthropocentrism, right? Like putting the human at the peak of evolution, at the peak of development. Try not doing that. Try not putting yourself as the pinnacle of creation. And try imagining that there is way, way, way further crazier things for you to be. And that it's sad that we're discriminating each other just as these selves, individual sentient beings with lifespans. Right? We had a different language. I mean, there's this, this, I don't know, I think it's in South America where, where it's a village, I don't know where it is, but it's like they don't have an I in their language. Right? So I don't know how they, so, but there is no I. And the, you know, the, the language just makes everything like reinforce the confusion that we have, right? Because that's, we wake up and I like coffee, I want coffee, I want, I need, you know, so I wish we would it, start maybe with language. 
And that goes way, way deeper in terms of Buddhism is very aware of the role of language in this. This is the nama rupa problem, name and form happening together, right? So that's, yeah, it's a language game. Really, truly, Wittgenstein, it's a language game that's formulating our reality. Um, Wittgenstein, this Austrian philosopher, genius person from the early 20th century, um, you know, he basically refers to grammar, Subject, verb, object. Subject, verb, object. There's a a temporality to that. Subject comes first, does something to something. So it's built into our grammar, that subject-object relationship. It's in time. First, second, third. Built into our grammar. And Wittgenstein talks about how if we could change our grammar, we might change our perception of time. And time might start f- seemingly flow backwards if our grammar changed. All right. <laughs> yeah, and if that happened, then you would really see the role that these lakshana are having. But usually we're duped by the lakshana. We're tricked by them. The sutra says... Wherever there is an appearance or a characteristic or a lakshana, there's deception. It says that. That's what it says. Anywhere you see lakshana, it's deception. It's a very powerful message. It's all deceptive. In particular, by the way, I've been meaning to say this on our, on our since we're talking about lakshana, this is a lakshana machine. <laughs> These are lakshana machines. All this is is appearances. All the, this, this tablet. All the things that come across, and actually these are all like 2D lakshana, sound and form, sound and imagery, and we take it to be the, our world. We take it to be a reflection of the world that we live in. So there are deep applications to this meditation on the role of lakshana. And it's not just about this, it's again, it's about this new kind of newfangled world we live in that's totally lakshanic based. Not that it's not all lakshana based, but again, this is like 6D, you know, 5D. We're reducing it down to 2D, just sound and, sound and visual, right? That's, that's, in terms of like the biodiversity of experience, that's like dangerous when we just get down to, you know, a couple forms of lakshana, right? Okay, so this is part two of our Vajra Pranyaparamita Sutra which is this little sutra. Um, I read half of it last time. I'm going to read the second half today. Two more things before we read it that you, it would be helpful to know. This guy Shibuti, right? Brendan pointed this out last week. Shibuti is not like Ananda. Ananda is the Buddha's youngest cousin. He's the last to the party. Literally, they're the group of 500 bhikkhus, the arhats when they got together, Ananda wasn't invited because he wasn't considered enlightened yet. And he actually had to sneak into the party. So there's this thing that goes on in Buddhist literature where Ananda is the youngest, the densest. You know, he's the last to get it. So sutras to Ananda are often the Buddha is chastising him. He's often kind of schooling him like a child. Shibuti, though, no, no, no. Shibuti is right there with the Buddha going back and forth. Subuti. The beautiful existence, a beautiful existence, Subuti. He's an elder, a Thera, and in that sense he represents this older Theravada tradition. 
So two things about Shibuti. He's, of course, an arhat. This is the highest level that you could get in the early Buddhist tradition. And there is a four-step process in Buddhism, a four-step process to enlightenment or liberation. And what they talk about is the first step, you become what is known as a stream-enterer, a shrotopana, and then you become a once-returner, Sakradagaman, I think. I'll look these up in a second. Sakradagaman. Once returner, and then a non-returner, Anagaman, and then finally Arhat, fully liberated. So what's going on here is, is that this is the original Buddhist idea. There is this metaphysical sea that in, in kind of goes in a way around our world system, the world that we live, a metaphysical sea of transmigration. And this is the stream, the stream of transmigration. And so we're living, here's Shibuti, here's the Buddha in the world that we live in. And the idea is that when beings die, and it could be any kind of sentient being, dogs, cats, butterflies, human beings, whatever, but when they die, the notion is, is that there's something it's tricky in Buddhism what that is. It's, it's a Vijnanic residue. Is it a Gandharava? There's all kinds of things. But the, traditionally, the idea is, is that something came out, landed in the sea of transmigration, and kind of went whoop and, get, and gets reborn back into the world. Right? But the whole process is so traumatic that we kind of wake up screaming and naked, and we're like, ah! And we spend the first 20 years of our life trying to figure out what the hell just happened. And then maybe in our 30s, we're like, something's familiar about all of this. Have I been here? And then you die. And then, and it all just keeps going around and around, right? So that's the sea of transmigration. And what's called a stream enterer, why they call it a stream enterer in Buddhism is that when you're ready to get off the carousel ride of that, you can kind of prematurely step into the stream of transmigration and start going what's called against the stream. And you start moving against this stream of transmigration until you eventually, so that's stream entry traditionally. You've heard the Dharma. You're like, hey, I don't want to get reborn ignorantly and wake up and try to figure out the whole thing again. I'm, I'm ready to figure it all out now. Great, you're a stream enterer. If you do the, the practice, the meditation, all of that, hard enough, good enough, long enough, you become what's known as a once-returner. And what that means is, is that when you die, you're going to get stuck in the, the stream of transmigration and come back one more time. And next time, you're going to figure all of this out, and you'll become an arhat. You'll become totally liberated. Or if you keep going this lifetime, you've entered the stream, you've been dubbed a once-returner, and you keep going, you can, be, you, can become a, you can become an anagaman, non-returner. And what that means is actually you will die, go out of, this, out of this world, and you will be reborn in a kind of more ethereal, metaphysical, dhyanic, heavenly realm. And there you will await basically either the future Buddha or something and achieve enlightenment in that state. You're never coming back here, though. You're a non-returner. Now, if you've entered the stream and you've been dubbed a once-returner and then been dubbed, oh, you're never even coming back, you can keep going with the meditation until you become an arhat. And that's somebody that's done. Done. Totally done. 
meaning you're not even going to pop out. You're done. And that's because in Buddhism, what keeps us coming back around and around and around is that we love it here. We have a sick attachment to this world and we love it. And so we die and we're like, ooh, total liberation, what's that? And we go right back into the world because we love it. So Buddhism's a little different than some other Indian philosophies where karma, karma or action in some Indian philosophies is sort of like all of our past actions is a giant avalanche that's just coming to get you. Everything you've been doing your whole life is just waiting to come get you, and there's kind of no avoiding it. And so when the wave of all your past karma comes and washes over you, you will then be reborn with your just fruits of all of that karma. But there's a way in which it's already all been done. And so you could, you could start working on minimizing your production of more karma, but all of that past karma is going to come and get you. This is actually saying, no, that's not actually quite what's going on with karma. What karma is is actually attachment and desire. And yeah, there's that wave coming. And if you're attached to that which the wave is going to crash down on, yes, the wave is going to come and get you. But if you do the dharmic practice entirely and liberate yourself entirely from all desire, you're done. Now, here, done. And that's called an arhat. Freed from all desire, not coming back, not even, not even, not even any, really, anymore. And what I mean by that, one second, what I mean by that is there's a classic example in Buddhism of um, this uh, candle. Yeah, I got a candle. Wick, uh, wax, there's uh, beeswax, beeswax, wick, candle flame, Right? The notion is, is that this is the beeswax, right? And my desire, in a way, or life is the fire, and the fire needs fuel. And it's like, oh, yeah. And I feed the fuel of desire by clinging and attachment, right? And that keeps this flame burning. The metaphor in Buddhism is that here's the wax, here's the, the wax candle, the flame is like my life, my consciousness, my being, all of that. And the, the visual, and this is just a metaphor and analogy, by the way, right? The, the visual is that there's a, a chunk of wax and a wick over here, but it's not alive. It's just a chunk of form, a rupa. And this candle lights that one, and then that one goes on. And that's reincarnation, the passing on of the flame of desire to a new body, right? And it keeps going. And then that flame goes to a new flame, goes to a new flame, goes to a new flame, right? If that flame is wanting, desiring, craving, the word, by the way, nirvana, literally means to blow out. And what the blowing out is, is the the, 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 the snuffing of that desire. I mean, there's no, nothing to pass on anymore. There's no desire to pass on anymore. Therefore, there's no coming out and being reborn. And arhat is freed from desire. No more candle flame. So now all an arhat has to do is live out their life and burn away this remaining karma. Meaning they just have to live out their life 
and then this will die and they're done. That was the original prescription, okay? This is going to negate all of that, by the way, okay? So, one more very deep idea that kind of connects those two. Um, this guy, Shibuti, I want to read a, from chapter 9. Very important chapter. In this chapter, which I'll read pretty much in its entirety in a second, but at the end of this, it's this discourse about how Shibuti, or how the Buddha, I should say, called Shibuti, he's, he's the one that loves the forest practice, the Aranya practice, all right? Traditionally, this is glossed over. This line of this is totally glossed over in terms of, oh yeah, Shibuti loves to meditate. It's so interesting, um, this reference to Shibuti, the one that loves the forest practice, the Aranya practice, as far as I can tell, is a direct reference to our Kula Shunyata Sutra that we read a number of weeks ago, the little Shunyata or Emptiness Sutra, where that sutra, if you weren't here, it's a beautiful sutra about descend. It's a meditation that the Buddha walks uh, Ananda through, and it's this descent, the, uh, uh, a, a descending into emptiness or shunyata. And that practice begins with forest, aranya. And you start the practice by, by meditating on the single concept forest. And then that idea of forest gives away to um, kashiti, to earth, the earth element, solidity. And then that gives away to infinite space, infinite consciousness, infinite nothingness, neither perception nor non-perception. And when you have actually removed all the lakshana away from everything and arrive at what is called the shunyata vihara, and a vihara is also a word for a kind of a forest dwelling. In other words, what I'm getting at is that Shibuti is not just a good meditator, he seems to be the best at the shunyata meditation, the one that we did that arrives at the animita chetto samadhi, this signless concentration, all right? So the reason why this discourse is being given to Shibuti is because Shibuti's been to the shunyata vihara. He's been to the realm of emptiness. He knows how to get there. And Shibuti, having been there, says to the Buddha in the beginning, if good men and good women want to achieve supreme, unsurpassable enlightenment. Anukara samyak sambodhi. What should they do? That's, the, that's Shibuti's question. What if I'm not satisfied with just being an arhat freed from desire? What if I want to be a Buddha? Because in many ways, what this is saying, and you may have already all picked up on this, to be a, quote, stream enterer, or to be a, quote, once returner, or even to be a, quote, non-returner, is all predicated on an Atman or individual or sentient being with a lifespan dying and being reborn. It's all predicated on these Lakshana. So this is going to be a reworking of the idea of stream entry, once returner, non-returner, because this sutra is saying, if I understand what the Buddha is saying, there's nobody to be a once-returner, non-returner. What does that even mean? Okay. One more kind of basic idea before I kind of read this. 
the probably the most difficult part of the sutra is a kind of a logical formula that's presented in here where the Buddha starts saying things like sentient beings are not sentient beings. And that's what are called sentient beings or what are called sentient beings are not sentient beings. That's why they're called sentient beings. It's another notoriously tricky part of the sutra. How do you translate this? What is the Buddha even saying? What is it actually even getting at? A million teachers have explained what they think is, is going on with that, with what is a blank is not a blank, and therefore it's a blank, or that formula, that weird formula. Um, I got talked to Ananda after class and talking about some logical ideas about, you know, what is a bowl? Well, maybe what a bowl is, is actually, maybe the mind is in a way working in reverse in that what is this? Well, it's not a cat, it's not a dog, and it's not a house, and it's not, actually, it's not everything else except a bull. That's the one thing it's, it's, so it's not not a bull, meaning there's a set of information which is not a bull, and it's not that. That's maybe it, but I, I want to, as, as tempting as that might be, as tempting as that might be, my feeling about that is that still falls in a very kind of Western, rigid, uh, cause-effect kind of way of thinking. It already predicates certain things, leading to certain things and all that. So it's not really based on pratitya samutpata, dependent origination. But I think there's a, a big clue in this chapter 9, this chapter about uh, our friend Shibuti being the, the, the one who does this Aranya practice, uh, chapter 9, he says, uh, Shibuti. So he's ta- this is the Buddha talking to our monk Shibuti. He says, Shibuti, what do you think? Is a Shrotopanna able to have this thought? I have obtained the fruit of a Shrotopanna, or not? And Shibuti replies, no, world honor one. And why is this? Because Shrotopannas are named for entering the stream. Yet there is no place to enter nor is there entering sight, sound, scent, taste, touch, or even thought. That is called a shrotapanna. So what's happening here is, is that this sutra, in this idea of a stream enter, the classic Buddhist idea of like, all right, you're, an, you're a student, you're an acolyte, you're, you're, you're on your way. Shibuti says, and remember, Shibuti does the the emptiness practice. So he says, well, the question again, is a Shrotapana, a stream enterer, are they able to have this thought, I've obtained the fruit of a stream enterer or not? By the way, this word fruit is referring to this idea of punya, rewards or merit. The, the rewards, the benefit, the good karma, just think of good karma. And there is a notion that with becoming a stream enterer, there's good karma that comes from that. That is the fruit of being a shrotapana, a stream enterer. And so Shibuti, what do you think? Is a shrotapana able to have this thought? I've obtained the fruits of a shrotapana, or not? And Shibuti replies, no, world on one. Shrotapanas are named for entering the stream, but there's nowhere to enter. Nor is there entering sight, sound, taste, touch or thought. I would suggest that not entering sight, sound, scent, taste, touch or thought 
is doing the signless practice of the emptiness sutra. That's what they're talking about. Doing the emptiness practice, not entering, not entering into sight, sound, scent, taste, touch, or thought, that's a shrotopana. So tonight, I'm going to suggest that this is actually a little more poetic than logical. And, but it is certainly still philosophical because it's saying, if we understand what the Buddha is saying, there is no self-individual sentient being or lifespan. Nobody to be reborn. Nobody to be a stream enterer. Nobody to be coming back once again. Nobody to be non-returning. So the old school idea of stream entry is a little too self-oriented. This is a Mahayana stream enterer, which is not entering into sight, sound, taste, touch, or thought. That's a stream enterer. That's real stream entry, right? And then he says, Shibuti, what do you think? Is a chakra dagaman able to have this thought? I've obtained the fruits of a chakra dagaman, or not? And Shibuti replies, no, world on one. Why is that? Because chakra dagamans are named for, for returning once more. Yet in reality, there is no more returning once more. That's a chakra dagaman. Meaning, if you have entered into the signless. You get what I'm talking about with the no lakshana, animita, what's called animita, no lakshana. If you get that, congratulations, you're a stream enterer. If you get that there's nobody to come back once more, congratulations, you're a once returner. Because you know there's nobody coming back once more. That's a once returner. Do you see what's going on here? It's tricky. This is the vajra. This is pranya wisdom. Regular, old, normal thinking, that's not pranya wisdom, right? This is pranya wisdom where it's challenging. It's to be challenging in that sense, right? And then the same thing, so really what does your mind say? Is an anagaman able to have this thought? I've attained the fruits of an anagaman, or not? And Shibuti replies, no, we're on one. Why not? Because anagamans are named for not returning. Yet in reality, there is no not returning. That's called an anagamen. So again, the same idea. So it used to be that if you kind of achieved certain levels of Buddhist meditation, you were dubbed a non-returner. Now it's if you get that there's no such thing as non-returning, congratulations, you're a non-returner. That's what's called a non-returner. Again, this is just a prelude. We're going to read it. Uh, I just wanted you to know all the words. Yep. Yeah, my question actually ties into that topic is, you know, there obviously there are so many like teachings around karma and the self and saving beings and coming back and and different well like you know, like ongoing going. And then you have like you know, that's a little bit confusing for me personally, and then you have like you know, these teachings, especially in Sakshan, which is like really non duality. It's like there is no self, there is no um, there is no actually samsara by nirvana. There is no karma. So my question to you is, is, is there a point in history or according to school when this non-duality came in? Or could you say like in Mahayana or early Buddhism it was more based on there is karma and samsara? Like when did this notion or this understanding there is no like relative world actually? Mm-hmm. You know, like... And did the... Like, 
was this like in history was this a big revelation and no it's bigger it's bigger than that actually i really want you to you know i'm always here trying to like you know really promote buddhism and how kind of unique it is this is you have uh, keep in mind or think about it in in this way that the concept of non-duality is like way before buddhism this is post this is past non-duality and i know it's like what do you mean like past non-duality um there's a uh, um, a Chinese Buddhist monk named Hui Nung who supposedly heard just, um, can you imagine, just four lines of this sutra and became enlightened. And he, had, he, write, he has writings in Chinese. He's considered kind of one of the most enlightened of the Chinese masters. He said this, and this was like his statement, but it's an articulation of what he said is, like if somebody asked Hui Nung, like what's in the, what's in the Vajra Sutra? He's, his answer would be this. There's no difference between an enlightened person and an unenlightened person. It's the enlightened person that understands that. That is not non-duality. That is some other order of thinking. Because I just told you there's no difference between an enlightened person and an unenlightened person. So there's no such thing as an enlightened person. It's an enlightened person that understands that. So you're immediately put back where you started. And you're like, no, but you just sit... No way, but you, but we that is so the 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 discursive dualistic mind will get caught in that forever. The enlightened mind will be like, of course, of course, there's no difference between an enlightened person and an unenlightened person. Let's see what the Buddha has to say about it. So again, last uh, last week we got all the way up to sixteen, which is the halfway point. I didn't mention this last time, but there are thirty-two chapters to the Vajra Sutra. This is a traditional format. Um, I'll talk about that at the end. So we got through 16. And interestingly enough, chapter 17, exactly midway through, the whole sutra seems to start over again. It's kind of weird. Now, if you were here last week or you go back and listen to the recording that I'll put online at some point, part of the reason why I wanted to attempt to do this in one reading is so that you could hear the, the, this hyperbolic explosion happening. Meaning these analogies start getting wilder and wilder and wilder. In, 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 in the, the Buddha talks about, you know, we live in this world system, but actually it's one among a thousand, and that's a, a thousand of those, and that's a medium. And then there's a thousand of those, which is really a thousand, thousand, thousand world systems. And this sutra talks about taking these seven treasures and filling a, a billion worlds with them and then practicing giving with them. And the, and the Buddha sort of saying, Shibuti, like if you, wow, if you filled a whole trichiliocosm with the seven treasures and just went around giving, you're like, you'd get a lot of punya, right? You'd get a lot of rewards. Shibuti's like, yeah. And the Buddha says, but if you just read four lines of this and explain it to other people, you get more rewards than if you dumped all of that in there. It's like, wow, that's a lot. But then a few chapters later, the Buddha says, what if there were as many trichilio causes as there are grains of sand in the Ganges River? Would that be a lot of worlds? And Shibuti's like, oh, that would be a lot of worlds. It's like, well, what if somebody put jewels in all those worlds? So the metaphor gets bigger. And they keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And, and that's fun. That's sort of the, po the poetry of these sutras is in that kind of wildness. And 
one of the reasons why you should traditionally read this in a sitting or read it aloud in one go is so that one's mind goes on that journey. And that the first time you hear it, your mind gets a little expanded and the second time a little more. And by the last time you're, you're floating in the trichiliacosm filled with the seven treasures. All right. So that's all you need to know if you weren't here. Chapter 17. At that time, Shibuti addressed the Buddha saying, world-honored one, when virtuous men and women develop the mind of supreme, unsurpassable enlightenment, on what would you say they should rely? How would you say they master their minds? The Buddha told Shibuti, virtuous men and women who develop the mind of supreme, unsurpassable enlightenment should give rise to a mind like this, thinking I must liberate all sentient beings. Yet after liberating all sentient beings, in reality, there is not a single sentient being who has been liberated. Why is this Shibuti? Because if bodhisattvas hold to the conception of a self, individual, sentient being, or lifespan, then they are not bodhisattvas. Why is this Shibuti? Because in reality, there is no dharma that is the development of the supreme, unsurpassable mind. Shibuti, what do you think? While the Tathagata was with Dipankara Buddha, there was a dharma attained that was a supreme, unsurpassable enlightenment. Was there not? There was not world under one. As I understand the meaning of what the Buddha has said, while the Buddha was with Dipankara Buddha, there was no Dharma attained that was supreme, unsurpassable enlightenment. The Buddha said, So it is, so it is, Shibuti. In reality, there is no Dharma the Tathagata attained that is supreme, unsurpassable enlightenment. Shibuti, if there was a Dharma the Tathagata attained that was supreme, unsurpassable enlightenment, then Dipankara would not have given me a prediction saying that in a future life, you will attain Buddhahood and be called Shakyamuni. Since, in reality, there is no Dharma attained that is supreme, unsurpassable enlightenment, that's why Dipankara gave me the prediction, making the statement, in a future life, you will attain Buddhahood and be called Shakyamuni. And why is this Shibuti? Tathagata is the suchness of all Dharmas. If there is someone who says the Tathagata attains supreme, unsurpassable enlightenment, Shibuti, in reality, there is no Dharma the Buddha attains. That is, supreme, unsurpassable enlightenment. Shibuti, within the supreme, unsurpassable enlightenment that the Tathagata attains, there is neither reality nor unreality. And for this reason, the Tathagata says that all Dharmas are Buddha Dharma. Shibuti, all those Dharmas are not dharmas. And for this reason, they are called dharmas. Shibuti, suppose somebody's body is very large. Shibuti replied, world honored one. The Tathagata says this person's body is very large. Hence, it is not a large body. And that is called a large body. Shibuti, bodhisattvas are also like this. If they make a statement like this, saying, I will liberate immeasurable sentient beings, then they are not called bodhisattvas. Why is this Shibuti? In reality, there is no dharma called a bodhisattva. 
For this reason, the the Buddha says, all dharmas are without self, individuality, sentience, or lifespan. Shibuti, if bodhisattvas make this statement, I will adorn the Buddha lands, they are not called bodhisattvas. Why is this? The Tathagata says that such adornment of Buddha lands is not by adornment. That is called the adornment of Buddha lands. Shibuti, if bodhisattvas penetrate the selflessness of all dharmas, the Tathagata says this is called truly being a bodhisattva. Chapter 18. Shibuti, what do you think? The Tathagata has physical eyes, does he not? So it is, world on one. The Tathagata has physical eyes. Shibuti, what do you think? The Tathagata has the divine eye, does he not? So it is, world on one. The Tathagata has the divine eye. Shibuti, what do you think? The Tathagata has the wisdom eye, does he not? So it is, so it is world on one. The Tathagata has the wisdom eye. Shibuti, what do you think? The Tathagata has the Dharma eye, does he not? So it is world honor one. The Tathagata has the Dharma eye. Shibuti, what do you think? The Tathagata has the Buddha eye, does he not? So it is world honor one. The Tathagata has the Buddha eye. Shibuti, what do you think? As for all the sand in the Ganges River, the Buddha has spoken of this sand, has he not? So it is world honor one. The Tathagata has spoken of this sand. Shibuti, what do you think? If there were as many Ganges rivers as there are grains of sand in a single Ganges river, and there were as many Buddha worlds as there are grains of sand in all those Ganges rivers, this would be many, would it not? Extremely many, world honored one. The Buddha told Shibuti, the Tathagata fully knows all the various types of minds of all the sentient beings in those lands. How is this? The Tathagata says all minds are not minds. That is what is called a mind. And how is this, Shibuti? The past mind cannot be obtained. The present mind cannot be obtained. And the future mind cannot be obtained. Chapter 19. Shibuti, what do you think? If there was someone who filled a great trichiliocosm with the seven treasures and used them all to practice giving, then, due to those causes and conditions, the reward that person obtained would be many, would they not? So it is, world on one. This person, due to the causes and conditions mentioned, would obtain extremely many rewards. Shibuti, if rewards existed in reality the Tathagata would not have said the rewards obtained would be many. But because of the inexistence of rewards, the Tathagata says the rewards obtained will be many. Chapter 20. Shibuti, what do you think? The Buddha can be seen by his perfectly formed body. Can he not? No, world honored one. The Tathagata should not be seen by his perfectly formed body. Why is this? Because the Tathagata says that a perfectly formed body is not perfectly formed. That is called a perfectly formed body. Shibuti, what do you think? The Tathagata can be seen by all 32 perfect characteristics. Can he not? No, we're all on one. 
the Tathagata should not be seen by all the 32 perfect characteristics. And why is this? The Tathagata says the perfection of all characteristics is not perfect. So it is called the perfection of all characteristics. Chapter 21. Shibuti, you should not claim the Tathagata has this thought. I must speak the Dharma. Do not have this thought. And why is this? Because if people say the Tathagata has spoken the Dharma, then they slander the Buddha and are unable to understand what I'm saying. Shibuti, in speaking the Dharma, there is no Dharma that can be spoken. That is called the Dharma. At that time, the wise Subhuti addressed the Buddha saying, World honored one, there are many sentient beings in their future lives who will hear this Dharma spoken and generate faith in mind. Are there not? The Buddha said, Shibuti, there are neither sentient beings nor non-sentient beings. Why is this Shibuti? Sentient beings, the Tathagata says, are not sentient beings. That is what is called sentient beings. Chapter 22. Shibuti addressed the Buddha saying, World under one, has the Buddha attained supreme, unsurpassable enlightenment without attaining anything at all? So it is. So it is, Shibuti. Regarding my supreme, unsurpassable enlightenment, there is not even the slightest dharma that can be obtained. So it is called supreme, unsurpassable enlightenment. Chapter 23, furthermore, Shibuti, this Dharma is universal and without variance, so it is called supreme unsurpassable enlightenment. By being without a self, individuality, sentient being, or lifespan in the cultivation of all wholesome dharmas, one attains supreme unsurpassable enlightenment. Shibuti, what are said to be wholesome dharmas the Tathagata says are not wholesome dharmas. That is what is called a wholesome dharma. Chapter 24. Shibuti. If there was someone who took heaps of the seven treasures that were like the majestic Sumeru mountain, and they piled them into a great chaichiliikasm and used all of them to practice giving. And on the other hand, Someone receives, retains, reads, and recites even just four lines of verse from this Pranyaparamita Sutra and explains them to others. The previous rewards are not even a hundredth of the latter, not even a thousandth, one ten thousandth, one millionth, nor even is a calculation or comparison able to be reached. Chapter 25. Shibuti, what do you think? You should not claim that Tathagata has this thought, I will liberate sentient beings. Shibuti, do not have this thought. Why is that? Because in reality, there are no sentient beings that Tathagata liberates. If there were sentient beings that Tathagata liberates, then the Tathagata would have the conception of a self, an individual, a sentient being, or a lifespan. Shibuti, the Tathagata says, an existent self is not an existent self. Yet ordinary people consider there to be an existent self. Shibuti. Ordinary people, the Tathagata says, are not ordinary people. Chapter 26. Shibuti. What do you think? 
The Tathagata can be perceived by the 32 characteristics, can he not? Shibuti replied, so it is. So it is. The Tathagata is perceived by the 32 characteristics. The Buddha said, Shibuti, if one perceives the Tathagata by the 32 characteristics, then a sagely wheel-turning king is the Tathagata. Shibuti addressed the Buddha saying, we're alone one. As I understand the meaning of what the Buddha has just said, the Tathagata should not be perceived by the 32 characteristics. At that time, the world honored one spoke this verse saying, if I am seen by sight or sought by sound, this person walks the wrong path, unable to see the Tathagata. Chapter 27, Shibuti. If you have this thought, it is not because of the perfect characteristics that the Tathagata attains supreme, unsurpassable enlightenment. Shibuti, do not have that thought. It is not because of the perfect characteristics that the Tathagata attains supreme, unsurpassable enlightenment. If you have this thought, one who develops the mind of supreme, unsurpassable enlightenment says all dharmas are characterized by annihilation. Do not have this thought. Why is this? One who develops the mind of supreme unsurpassable enlightenment does not say that dharmas are characterized by annihilation. Chapter 28. Shibuti. If a bodhisattva filled as many trichiliocosms as there are grains of sand in the Ganges rivers with the seven treasures and use them all to practice giving, and if, however, there is someone who knows all dharmas are selfless, and achieves the patient forbearance of the selflessness of all things, this bodhisattva surpasses the merit obtained by all aforementioned bodhisattvas. Shibuti, this is because all bodhisattvas do not receive rewards. Shibuti addressed the Buddha saying, World Honored One, why do you say bodhisattvas do not receive rewards? Shibuti, The rewards bodhisattvas receive should not be desired. And for this reason, it is said they do not receive rewards. Chapter 29. Shibuti, if there is someone who says the Tathagata either comes or goes, sits or lies down, this person does not understand the meaning of what I'm saying. Why is this? The Tathagata has nowhere to come from and nowhere to go. Therefore, he is called the Tathagata. Chapter 30, Shibuti, if virtuous men and women were to grind a great trichiliocosm into a pile of minute particles, what do you think? This assemblage of minute particles would be many, would it not? Extremely many, world honor one. Why is this? If this assemblage of minute particles was really existent, then the Buddha would not have spoken of an assemblage of minute particles. How is this? The Buddha says an assemblage of minute particles is not an assemblage of minute particles, and that is called an assemblage of minute particles. Worlana one, the Tathagata has said a great, great trichiliocosm is not a great trichiliocosm, and that's a great trichiliocosm. Why is this? If a great trichiliocosm were really existent, then it would be a unified entity. The Tathagata says a unified entity is not a unified entity. 
And that is what is called a unified entity. Shibuti, a unified entity, cannot be spoken of. Only ordinary people are attached to such a matter. Chapter 31, Shibuti. If someone says the Buddha has spoken of the view of a self, individual sentient being or lifespan, Shibuti, what do you think? This person understands the meaning of what I say. Have they not? We're alone one. This person does not understand the meaning of what the Tathagata has said. Why is this? The world honored one says that the view of a self, individual sentient being or lifespan is not a view of a self, individual sentient being or lifespan. And that is what is called the view of a self, individual sentient being or lifespan. Shibuti. Those who develop the mind of supreme, unsurpassable enlightenment should regard all dharmas by knowing like this, seeing like this, believing and understanding like this, without giving rise to the conception of dharmas. Shibuti, what is said to be the conception of dharmas, the Tathagata says, is not a conception of dharmas. And that is what is called the conception of dharma. Chapter 32, Shibuti. If there is someone who fills immeasurable, asamkya world systems with the seven treasures and uses them to practice giving, and if there are virtuous men and women who develop the mind of a bodhisattva and take even just four lines of verse from this sutra, receiving, retaining, reading and reciting them and expounding them to others, their rewards will surpass those. Shibuti replied, how would you say they expound it to others? The Buddha replied, by not holding on to appearances. Immovable like thusness. How is this, Shibuti? All conditioned dharmas are like a dream, an illusion, a bubble, a shadow, like dew and like lightning. That is how they should be perceived. After the Buddha had spoken this sutra, the elder Shibuti, with all the bhikshus, bhikshunis, upasakas, upasikas, and the devas, human and asuras of all worldly realms, heard what the Buddha had said and were all greatly pleased, believing, receiving, honoring, and practicing it. The Vajrapanyaparamita Sutra. All right. Questions, answers, ideas? Anything come up? A lot going on. A lot going on. Did the, the part with the past mind, present mind, and future mind, did that kind of deviate from the, the, the general sort of uh, whatever rhythm of this sutra? Or does it fit within all the other, you know, whatever? It's not that because it is that. Oh, that's a unique line. That's truly a unique line there. So that line comes up in the chapter that's all about these eyes, right? Does the, does the Buddha have this eye or that eye and all these different eyes? And then he goes on and says, yeah, the Buddha's got all these different eyes. And then the Buddha lays out this analogy of all these world systems. And he says that the Tathagata fully knows all the minds of all those beings in all those worlds, right? 
And then it ends by saying, and he says, well, how is, how is this Shibuti? Like, how is it that I know the minds of all the beings and all the trichiliocosms and all the multiverse? And he says, how is that? And he says, the past mind cannot be obtained, the present mind cannot be obtained, the future mind cannot be obtained. And that little coda, that little end of it is very famous. And there's a lot of people that have, you know, commentaries on what that means. Um, simply put, what they mean, what they're talking about is sort of this, um, well, the imperceivability or, or in, you can't grab the past mind, right? You, yesterday, that past mind, it's gone, gone. The future mind, the, the ideas that you will be having tomorrow, that's not, who, who knows, that's not here. Even the present mind cannot be held. And some people say, oh, because it's moving too fast, you, you can't grab it. Sure, fine, that's one way of thinking of what's being said. But there's something deeper going on here, which is this idea about, you know, a Buddha is, is characterized as having sarvanyana, all knowledge, Ability to read minds, sure. Ability to see past lives, actually all lives. Kind of just seeing when, supposedly when Buddhists see people, they just see that chain of past lives just behind them, their whole existence kind of a thing. How is all of that? How is a Buddha all-knowing, omniscient, sarvanyana, all of that? Um, you know, and it's related to this idea of, the, of a Buddha liberating all sentient beings, knowing the minds of all sentient beings and liberating them. But in reality, there's no sentient being. So it's all wrapped up in that idea. And I mean, oh, we, I mean, we could be here all night trying to unpack what's going on there, right? But it's more than just like the brain is process. Like it's, it's beyond that notion. Yeah, you I know, mean... Where's it, the mind? Because it's, it's one experience to the next. And it's processing information in the present moment. Yes, indeed. But I would... I would Suggest that this, you know, this sutra is deep, 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 deep. This is operating also on many levels. Many levels meaning, yeah, it's just kind of simple, not simple, but it's like lo certain kind of logic in terms of, you know, I can explain to you what these words mean and then kind of backtrack and explain to you the kind of wisdom in it. But it's operating on many levels. And one way that I want to maybe start to talk about all of this, these uh, self-individual sentient being or lifespan and relate it to the idea of the minds and how can a Buddha know all minds? Um, let's do, let's do the sentience part, right? One idea of something having the appearance, the appearance or the lakshana of sentience, right? Um, so I look over at Robert, I'm like, yeah, he looks sentient. He's like blinking and looking at me, right? That's like the idea, right? The deluded, unenlightened mind thinks that this is how it works. That I look and I, and I go, oh, there's some movement, blinking, things that I have come to associate with sentience, and ergo, Robert is such a bingo, right? Buddhism says that's not actually what's going on here, and that actually my determination of sentience is predicated and based on that which I perceive to be not sentient. And so in a pratitya samudpata dependent origination kind of idea, where these two things are arising at the same time, sentience is, is bound up deeply with the idea of not being sentient. And in fact, I cannot have sentience without the idea of not sentient. It would make no sense for there to be sentient if I didn't have the idea of an object that doesn't have 
faculties of sense, right? But in terms of dependent origination, if you go back to all the Dharma talks and you remember that the green of this little pillow, that the green is not held or possessed by this, the greenness is arising dependently, dependently originated between my eyes, my unique eyes, the unique physical structure of these eyes coming into contact with God knows what, Buddha knows what, and the two, when they arise, oh, it's green. But the green pillow is in the in-between. It's what my mind is imagining. And again, if somebody came with a color blindness, different physical eyes, they would say, oh, it's this color. And that sort of proves, if you will, that the green, the color of this is not in this. It's actually in my mind in that sense. And then projected back onto the thing. And I'm like, oh, look at the green pillow. But it's actually being dependently originated in my mind. I'm deluded, ignorant, don't know that. So I just assume it's a property of the object, right? If everybody's okay with the greenness isn't in this, it's in the in-between. The sentience isn't in this, it's in the in-between. No such thing as ascension to being. No such thing as ascension being. That's what's... Thank you very much. Indeed. Can I even go so far and get now a little bit into philosophy, philosophy, but could you even say like the green is actually um, only present when there is a thought? Because, you know, like if I'm not aware of the window, there is no window, right? The window is just there when there's the thought. Mm Mm-hmm. So then Krishnamurti comes in with the thinker is the thought itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. That is exactly the idea of the Shunyata Sutra that we talked about. In this idea of, you know, I mentioned this idea of like we are all, or at least if your eyes are open and looking up here, we're all having the visual sensation of the little green pillow, right? That visual sensation of the little green pillow in Michael's hand that visual sensation is being caused by this. It's dependent upon this. Yes. And watch. Everybody watch the magic trick. Oh, no more visual sensation of the green pillow. Oh, my God. Right? Because I'm, I'm not being stimulated by it. It's not happening. Right? Yeah. What's go- I don't know what's going on out there. It's not. I don't know. No pillow. No people outside. Right? So the practice of that emptiness sutra was to keep doing that. Keep going with uh, uh, no pillow, no bowl, no nothing, no people, no sounds, no, just keep going and stripping away all the lakshana until you arrive at the lakshana-less monster. I don't know. Like the, the, you arrive at the, the shunyata vihara, that animita chetta samadhi, the signless samadhi. And, but what you were just getting on, that was it. The idea that, yes, the, the visual sensation is dependent on all these things. But it's, that's just right. It's dependent on all these things. Right? But again, I want to talk about this idea, though, that our minds, our, our mind, this is what, in terms of the skandhas, in terms of the aggregates of the self, this is what's called samya. Samya means I'm not just determining where Robert is based on this. I'm looking over there. I'm looking at the inanimate thing, and I'm like, Oh, it's a being. Oh, look, it's a being because it's not a not a moving being. 
But it's dependent on those two things. And so I would say or suggest that in the same way, if you can, get a, if you can understand what I mean by that the greenness isn't in that thing, it's arising in the in-between, as a lakshana, the lakshana of self, individual sentient being or lifespan, are arising in the in-between of all this. The notion of duration. Um, here, I'll show you another one real quick that I, I wanted to do today. Let's make up this. Eight years, 16 years. So we're going to be talking about the self, individuality, sentience, and lifespan in terms of a 32-year-long lifespan. Okay? And I want to kind of break down this idea of what the Buddhists call on Atman. No Atman, no self, no individuality. We've kind of been dealing with the sentience problem. I'm actually going to be specifically talking about this problem of lifespan and how we have no lifespan, no duration. Okay. So if this is your first time uh, hearing about Buddhism and all of that, um, if you didn't know, we all have this notion of a self. So not an Atman. We all have the notion of an Atman, of a, of a self. And if you didn't know, a lot of people don't know about themselves. We throw this word around, and so uh, I describe the self or the Atman as the experiencer of our lives. We all have the notion that there is a self between the ears and behind the eyes that has been like a little pilot of our life that has been the receiver of all of these experiences. That's a self that you were born and jumped out, that you went to elementary school and had a little lunch pail and were scared the first day of school, that you went to your senior prom, that you went to college, that you did all these things, that there's a pilot that was receiving all of that. Right? Does this sound familiar? The notion of a self, right? Well, I'm going to walk you through Quickly, that Buddha, the Buddhist way of seeing how the, all of that's actually happening and how there's no self-individual sentient being in your lifespan. So Buddhism has this idea that instead of a self, instead of a one thing experiencing all of this for 45 years, I'm only going to do 32 years, but that's the idea. Instead of a self, we are actually the momentary kind of amalgamation of uh, <clears throat> form or rupa, physical matter, sensations that are basically positive, uh, negative, and neutral reactions to things. So you are your positive, negative, and neutral reactions to things that you experience through sensory organs made of form. So this is your eyes, your ears, your nose, your tongue, your body, and your brain. Those are all the sensory organs. You're a big blob of sensory organness, right? Uh, like feeling and sensing. That, all that form of sensations produces negative and positive sensations. You are, let's see, you're something called samya, <coughs> samskara, I'll get to these in a second, and then vijnana, or consciousness. 
All right. So you're a bunch of matter having sensations. What was that? Right? So you, what was that? Oh, what's that? What's that? So you have matter forms creating sensations. And then if it, it's like, uh, so here's a form and it's like, oh, what was that? Right? So I had a sensation. Let's say I liked it. I was like, oh, that sounds nice. I go, oh, what was that? Well, I quickly, through deduction, go, well, it wasn't that, it wasn't that, it wasn't that, it wasn't that. It was that thing that was making the noise that I liked. That process of, of understanding what we're looking at, of like de deducing, cutting the world up into things, and then being like, oh, that was making the noise, that's a samya. We're all trained from birth, maybe even lifetime after lifetime, to disambiguate objects to make sense of the world. And then what we do is, is that we have negative and positive relationships to those things that we've disambiguated. Everybody following me on this? So your, your unique way of dividing the world up, that's you, sort of. You are your unique way of dividing the world up based on your positive and negative neutral reactions that are coming from your sensory organs made out of form. Samskara is a little different. This is actually about kind of emotional relationships to things based on past experiences. So now it's like, I, sensory organ, here's the sens sensation. And I'm like, oh, I like that. <clears throat> what was that? Disambiguate, disambiguate. Oh, it was the bowl. I love bowls because my mom used to buy me bowls as a little kid. I have such a, a fond, warm, fuzzy feeling about bowls. And then I'm here thinking about how much I love that bowl which I've determined that it's a bowl based on, and that I love it based on my past relationship with things that looked like that, which I have determined based on the disambiguation, which I've determined based on sensations which are arising from form. Everybody following that? Simple. So what I'm gonna do is that when we are born, we are this amalgamation of the five skandhas. And you can think of this as a formula of, when you start, let's just pretend we're tabla rasa, clean slates when we come into this samsaric nightmare. So one, I'm going to say these are five slots for the five skandhas. And this is my bodily form in configuration A, my sensations in configuration A, my samya in configuration A, my samskara, and then finally my consciousness in configuration A. Now, the one that changes the quickest is vijnana, our consciousness. It's changing. It already changed. Just like that. I said a new word, boom, you're thinking about something else. So within seconds, we are set A, 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 B. And then, I mean, within seconds, we're set A, 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 C, A, 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 D. A. So this, this column is ticking away so fast. B, C, D, yeah. We're into, I don't even know, you know, set 2A, 2B, 2, you know, keeps going. Our relationship to things, our samskaric conditioning, also changes, maybe not quite so fast. And so you could see how as this goes on, you would become set A, 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 B, C, because my samskara has changed. Again, the vijnana is just clicking out of control. After enough experiences or education or what have you, this one could change. My sensations are changing based on what I'm experiencing. It's like, oh, I like this, I don't like that. So these are always changing. And then finally, even the physical form 
is changing. And supposedly they say that after a period of eight years, just about every cell of your body has died, gone down the shower drain, and been replaced with a new cell. So by the time you get to age eight, you would be set B, God, you know, God knows where you're at in terms of these other ones, but you can imagine you're at X, you're at Y, you're at whatever and whatever, right? I mean, the example's sort of falling apart now, but you get, you're at 2A and then you're at whatever, you know, 100X on the consciousness. Everybody follow me on this so far? Talk to me. So aren't these states electioners themselves? Hold on. Mr. Enlightened, hold on. <laughs> Seriously. Okay, so here's, you, so you, mathematically you can kind of see how there would be a relationship, what Buddhists would call a karmic relationship, between me at, eight, quote, me at age eight, that is a completely different set of, of uh, skandhas. A completely different set. Yet there is a causal karmic relationship between this eight-year-old me and the me that was born. There is a deep, intimate relationship, right? Because, you know, I always describe it as, as um, hey, look, form and sensations and, you know, conditioning consciousness, the five skandhas. And the idea is that when I walked in the room a couple hours ago, form, certain sensations, certain condition, you know, uh, samya, certain samskara, certain dijnana. And that set kind of bumps the next set into being, because this, thinking about this, oh, makes this into being, makes this into being. And each step keeps bumping the next me into existence, and each thing I say keeps bumping the whole thing along until you get 32 years down the line, and your set of skandhas is entirely different. We're talking now radically different bodily form, radically different way of sensing the world, dividing it up, condition, behavior, emotion relations to it, and of course this consciousness thing just spinning out of control. Did everybody follow me? How there could be a continuity without an essence, without a pilot? The pilot is what the Buddha is saying is an illusion, is not actually true. The idea of an experiencer that's been experiencing all of this for 45 years, that's just uh, like, well, there must be, right? That's where it comes from. The presumption that there must be. It kind of feels like that. But if you actually put it under the microscope, there's no self there. What there is is a causal relationship between your actions <laughs> and where you are and what you're doing, creating your future. So follow me on this. So when I'm born, certain set of skandhas, change, 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 change. I'm at age eight, totally different. 16, even different. 24, 32, right? Yet continuity, causal relationship, karmic, a karma train, bumping all of these things into existence, right? And just like I said, about an hour ago, that bumped that guy in, that bumped this guy into existence, that bumped this guy into existence, that bumped, oh, hey, everybody, this guy into existence, that's doing that, right? All of that can happen without a self, right? This is what Buddhism is talking about in terms of lifespan. This is the belief in a lifespan, 
What I just told you is there's nothing to have a lifespan. There's no experiencer of your life to be 45 years old. There's a further place to go with this, though. If you want to just play along, let's say I died when I was 32. Now I was reborn. Zero. Right? And let's say before this life, I lived until I was 88. I died and I was reborn. And there's all of this. What Buddhism is sort of saying regarding reincarnation and all of that is that there can still be reincarnation without a self. Just like there's a Michael without a self. And this bumps this, bumps this, bumps this, and whoops, I died and then bumped that into existence. And that being that inherits all of this karma, it has a, a, relation, a karmic relationship to me, but it's not me. The, the baby that gets reborn based on all this karma, that's not me, but this isn't me. <laughs> Do you see what I'm saying? There, there, there's no me. That's the idea. So if you can understand how there's no me within the span of an hour or two, yet there's still a, something going on here, right? The idea of Buddhism and reincarnation is they're like, well, yeah, there's still reincarnation, but there's no self. And those two things are not mutually exclusive or contradictory at all. Because there's still this happening, bumping the next, bumping the next, without a self, without an essential self, without an Atman, without individuality, ultimately without sentience. And then again, what I'm mainly talking about is this illusion of lifespan, the illusion of duration, right? Lakshana, exactly. That's the whole point. We think, no, physically, we think DNA, we think whatever, and then we think uh, genes and passing on all of that. Buddhism is saying, no, actually, a lakshana, self, individual, with a lifespan. In this version of the argument, is the alihavinyana playing any role, or is that just not present here at all? I would say no. I would say that this, the Alaya Vijnana comes a little bit later when Buddhists get more into wrestling with like, well, then what is the, what's the underlying experiencer here type of a thing? Or what's the underlying repository Alaya of all of this? That, yeah. So that's a little bit later in that development. Yeah. Questions about this? Ideas? Yeah, no. I have two questions. What is it that that if if there's reincarnation, that doesn't include the rupa, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the but but whatever the rupa experienced in the previous life affects the next life, even though the rupa is. I can, I can, I'm trying to see the connection because you said that just as the, the Michael that walked in the mm-hmm. Michael that walked in an hour ago is bumped to, forward to the Michael that's here now but when you die if your physical form you know, disintegrates what is it that actually goes that carries 
that karma to the next life? Isn't it just the consciousness? And how is that mm-hmm. similar to or different than the flame and the whole, you know, the one that goes flying around the world and comes in? Is that the consciousness? Or is that the flame which you described earlier today as being the desire? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um. You were saying that the form changes the slowest. So let's say the form hasn't changed since an hour ago. Yeah. It has. Some of course. cells have sloughed off. But, yeah. But the consciousness has changed a lot. So let's just say the consciousness, like, what changes the consciousness from one second to the next? So there, but the, so there's nothing. Is that the well, yeah, it's, it's, it's very complicated, and actually it leads right to the Alaya Vijnana, which is this question of what is the medium through which the Vijnana, which is understood to be what pops out upon death, is some sort of Vijnanic, Vijnanic property, and it travels through some sort of medium, ethereal realm. The Alaya Vijnana, this storehouse consciousness, starts to become the substratum through which that process can happen, sort of. But this all starts to get really complicated, and only because of what... It's why questions of, wait, aren't all these Lakshana? I get my own self into so much trouble because I'm always juggling all of Buddhist history and trying to be like, well, the Theravadans think this, but the Yogacharans are over here thinking this. And it's like... You know, doing all of that's very difficult. And so somebody can quickly say, well, you just, but those are Lakshana. And I'm like, yeah, right, you're enlightened. Stop. Okay. You know, because we're, this conversation is happening like many places, you know, or many levels in that way. So the question of that is, again, I would just ask you to reflect on what do we think is being transferred from one state to the next of my own life? And Buddhism is kind of saying it's the exact same process if you think about it in terms of going into the next rebirth. It's the exact same process. And more to the point is that liberation can happen at any point on the process, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. That liberation or nirvana isn't going to come after I die and then I'm going to make it to the green pastures of nirvana. Nirvana is samsara because the idea is this is it. This is nirvana. Have Have you figured it out yet? If you haven't, that's called samsara. If you have figured it out yet, that's called nirvana. But nirvana is samsara. I'm getting stuck on the, and this is a duality between the form and the other four. I know, and that's where I get, again, myself into trouble because traditionally in Buddhism, um, form was made of the four elements, earth, fire, water, and air, and was real. And, And this was rupa, and these were called nama, name or actually, well, actually Nama is a crazy word, uh, but these were considered mind, and this was body, and Theravada Buddhism has a big mind-body problem because of that. The Yogacara or the mind-only school says, oh yeah, no, it's all Lakshana, and even the Lakshana of it being solid, liquid, gaseous, or on fire, having temperature, those are Lakshana. And one of the wildest ideas that this sutra drops is when they say, so this character means shang. This means a lakshana or a characteristic. And they're talking about, you know, round, bowl, all these lakshana. The final one they drop on you is the dharma lakshana. That it has the lakshana or the appearance of being true, of being dharma. That that's a lakshana. That's a very interesting twist. But what happens in Buddhism is that they're like, oh, it's all lakshana. Like even... even 
me thinking of known, that's a lakshana, all lakshana, all mind made thus vijnana matri, just consciousness, as they say. One other thing in this version of the argument that I think is interesting is that there's a relationship between the notion of momentariness and the notion of causation the Buddhists accept and the notion of duration. And from what I understand, it's supposed to be the case that their theory of causation plays an extremely powerful role in capturing the notion of non-duration momentariness, which that's what's going on there. It's when you have the notion of these thicker durations that you're able to insert this question about the underlying thing, but when momentariness is understood not as like, like a billionth of a second or a nanosecond, but rather durationless, then you, then you don't, don't, can't have the same metaphysical issue. And then the question of how you get the argument for a durationless moment comes from their theory of causation. That's the connection I was told. Sounds good to me. It's all pratitya samudpata, dependent origination, right. so where even that. time yeah. is dependent, past, dependently originated. That, yeah. So that. there is only the present moment in that sense. Yeah. And that also what you just said, Ananda, speaks to the no, the past mind cannot be obtained, the future mind cannot be obtained, the present mind cannot be obtained, because even that notion of present, we're out, we're gone, we're done in that way. So, so. Um, let's see, I lost this. Okay, so you're talking about how like even an idea or a conception like that's a lakshana. So isn't, in a sense, the idea of reincarnation a lakshana and the reason I ask this is because I'm wondering if any if all of this can kind of work without the concept of reincarnation it seems like this is a an idea conception that came from that predates Buddhism and then you know we have the Theravada so we get to this and then you've got the sublime Vajnana stuff that comes down the road and it almost feels like all this mental gymnastics to keep that idea in the mix and and kind of seems like, well, do you even really need that idea in there? It seems kind of like an empty concept in itself. Yep. Yeah? I used to struggle in my early days as a teacher or Dharma teacher because it was like, this is a bunch of people that don't believe in reincarnation. So do I need to teach them all about reincarnation only to then negate it? <laughs> you already don't think it. <laughs> However... Same when you explained this ex- example, like, you know, you said, like, mm-hmm. he's just a sentient being because, like, you know, mm-hmm. comparison. So you need this, to understand lightness, you, you need darkness, otherwise you don't... So exactly. Kind of, yeah. That's it. Yeah. Right. Okay. <laughs> There's more to that, but I can't. Sure yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> One last thing, just real quick, because if I don't say it now, the moment will, will, will flee forever. In chapter 28 of this, there is this moment where he says about um, uh, if, if a Bodhisattva filled as many trichillary causes as there are grains of sand in the Ganges rivers with the seven treasures and used them in practice of giving. And if, however, there is someone who knows all dharmas are selfless, achieving patience, this paramita, achieving kshanti. This bodhisattva surpasses the merit obtained by all aforementioned bodhisattvas. So it says that all the ones in the past that were filling or, or teaching the Vajra Sutra or whatever, if a bodhisattva knows all dharmas are selfless, achieving, the, achieving this patient forbearance, then this bodhisattva surpasses all others. 
There is something, an idea that's come up in many sutras that we've read, which is the patient endurance for the birthlessness or selflessness of all things. This has been mentioned about a bodhisattva achieving the state of the patience for the selflessness of all things, or more importantly, the birthlessness of all things. This is the first time this idea is mentioned in, in a sutra, as far as I know, and it becomes this foundation of a lot of Mahayana Buddhism. And what it's referring to is everything we just spoke about at the end here, which is that if you understand that duration is a lakshana, and especially if you understand dependent origination, that time is a dependently originated concept, and all there is is not even the, quote, present moment. It's like, you know, I can do a gesture. It's like not even that, right? But this idea... If you get all of that, then you understand there, it says the Tathagata has nowhere to come from, nowhere to go. The idea is, is that this realization of the emptiness and being like, oh, oh. So if bowl here is just the projection of an idea and a notion, that bowl didn't come from anywhere or go anywhere. It's just the projection of an idea. It wasn't born or made anywhere. Not born or made anywhere, just present Tathagata, being. That's the idea. Uh, the Bodhisattva who then is, has patience, kushanti, patience, towards the birthlessness of all things. That's a Bodhisattva. Why patience? Indeed, why patience? It's not, the, it's not pranya, it's not a meditation. It's not virya, it's not shila, it's kushanti. Kashanti, the root of this word is shanti, peace. Kashanti, patience. Even our English word patience is rooted in this peace. Pazness, right? P-A-Z, peacefulness. Why patient? The patience for the birthlessness of all things. Is there a practice? Uh, yeah, it's called being patient with the birthlessness <laughs> of all things. I think that the idea is, and I don't want to keep us too long, but there is a, a couple of times it says in here where, where Shibuti's like, man, people are going to hear this and flip out. And the Buddha's like, don't say that because it's going to be a rare person who hears this and doesn't flip out because it's kind of saying there's no sentient beings. There's nobody to be born, nobody to die. Grandma didn't die. Grandma didn't exist to begin with. And it's sort of, sort of like that requires a certain patient endurance of that idea that grandma never existed to begin with. And so there's a very gentle patience towards that notion or that idea. And, and the bodhisattva sort of dwells in that or is, is in that idea. So the patience is what gives people solace in a funereal context. Exactly. And on that note, I think I will call it a night. The Vajra Sutra. Thank you. Oh, thank you.